Good morning again. So I had a week off, which means you get like both barrels and maybe some additional. And so just, you know, just get ready. We'll be here a while. Hopefully you brought a snack. No. Uh, I, want you, I want you to think about, you know, if we're learning how to live with open hands, what are some of the things you cling to? What are some of the things in your life that you cling to? So maybe it's like, Saturdays are mine. I work hard all week. I go to church on Sunday. Saturdays are mine, hands off, off limits. And we're saying that to God, saying that to others. Or maybe for you, you know what? My home is my castle. And you've built a wall around your home. You might have even dug a moat so that nobody can even get to the wall. Hands off. It's mine. It's my solitude. It's my rest. No entrance. What do you hold tightly to? What do you keep a firm grasp on? Maybe it's your family. It's family time, family first, all family, all the time. Barricade the world away. What do you hold tightly to? Maybe it is the green bills that sit inside your wallet. They're mine. I earned them. I worked hard for this. I get to do what I want with it. Whatever hobbies, whatever equipment for my hobbies, it's mine, hands off. So if it's your time, if it's your family, if it's your dinner table, if it's your home, if it's your money, we're prone as people to cling to things in our lives, to cling to and and say that this is mine and, and nobody gets a part of this. But what the gospel does is the riches of the grace of God, the generosity of God pouring into our lives, loosens our grip. And the more we taste and see that the Lord is good, the more we taste of the radical generosity of God, the more our hands open. And now it's no longer my time, my home, my family, my stuff, my weekend, my table, my money. It's God's. It's God's time. It's God's table. It's God's home. It's God's stuff. It's God's money. It's God's weekend. And he may graciously let me Sabbath, or he may graciously let me go work. And that's okay. The gospel is, radically generous, is a radically generous God giving. And when a radically generous, generous God gives and adopts, it creates radically generous people. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we're going to do a bigger chunk today. Um, you know, because it's kind of united around one, one main theme. Uh, so we're going to do 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 1 through 15. And what has happened is, is Paul has closed out kind of the major section of the book. And the big question that was asked and answered is, Paul, why are you so bold? Why are you so direct with us? Who gives you the right? And so Paul answered that, the gospel. And Paul answered that, you only exist in the gospel because of me. Paul answered that, the stripes on my back are what it took for the gospel to get to you. So that's why. That's the right. That's the authority. And so he's been answering that for a good chunk of the section. He has closed that out, and now he's going on to a brand new topic. And it seems somewhat out of the blue, right? Why are you so bold? What gives you the right? By the way, there's this whole offering thing we need to talk about. But the the bridge is not so much the theme as the bridge is like Titus's visit dealt with reconciliation and some other things. But Titus's visit also dealt with this offering. And so the visit of Titus ties the last passage to, to this one. Uh, so, last week, or well, two weeks ago, we, we closed out that section talking about that 
there is the joy of life-giving repentance. Like we don't usually put those things together, but the gospel does. There is a deep abiding joy when we are encountered by God, confronted by God, convicted by God, and repentance comes out of it. It's life-giving. And especially, you know, he gave teaching like on repentance, but he also gave a personal example. Like there is this, there is this joy that sustains me through suffering, knowing that our relationship is reconciled again. Knowing that you repented and we are restored together. I don't care what I have to face. Because we've been reconciled. And so that's how Paul dealt with it, is the personal story as well as the repentance. And it walked out in phases. The first phase was confrontation. Like if you're going to come to a place of genuine, godly, life-giving repentance, confrontation is going to have to happen. And that may be God by a spirit confronting you and convicting you. Spirit's really good at his job and that's his job, one of them. Or it may be that the word in study or in preaching or in Sunday school convicts you. Or it may be that it actually takes another person loving you enough to walk into your life and point something out and confront something that's wrong in your life, wrong in your marriage, wrong in your relationships. Confrontation leads to this experience of repentance. And it's not, I'm sorry I got caught, and I'm not sorry that there's consequences. It is a grief over offense towards God. There is this overwhelming sense of sorrow that I have harmed my relationship to God, that I have offended God, that I have grieved God. And that experience of repentance leads to the last phase, this fresh passion to follow after Jesus. And so, confronted, do you receive conviction? Do you receive the correction of God into your life? Response, do you respond? Is there a sorrow in your life? And then, can you tell that genuine repentance happened because you actually are changing you're actually desiring Jesus more. You're actually following after Jesus with a fresh passion. So that was two weeks ago. This week we're talking about an offering. Um, and it's basically the simple point. We have a generous God who's given us a generous gospel which makes us generous people. And so there's gospel generosity. Let's pray. Father, make us generous people, I pray. Not just generous with our money. Generous with our lives. Make us people that love the gospel so much, that have tasted the grace of Jesus so much that our lives and our hearts and our money are wide open to you. God, do a work in us, we pray. A work of your grace. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so let's look at it. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 15. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and extreme poverty have overflowed into a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, and as I can testify, beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this was not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he has started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove the earnestness to, to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that, by, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you. Who a year ago not only 
uh, started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring may be matched by your completing of what you have. For if readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. The gospel of grace produces generous people. The gospel of grace produces generous people. First step, the first example of that, the sacrificial example of others can spur our gospel generosity. The sacrificial examples of others can spur our gospel generosity. So I get the joy of, of coaching kind of middle school soccer and, and, and a league that's kind of like that. And so when I want to teach a new skill uh, or set up a new drill, I'll be like, okay, here's what we're doing. Here's the skill. Here's how you do it. Um, here's the drill we're going to set up so that you can learn it. But I don't just tell them that. I then get to demonstrate the skill. Okay, now watch this. This is how we do it. And so then they get to do it, and they get to do it at a slow speed, and then we get to give feedback. And so we're modeling for them. This is how you do this skill. This is how you learn it. Or maybe for some of you, this would be an example that would be more helpful. If you want to learn to cook, how do you do that? You, you could buy a, a cookbook, right? There's thousands of them out there, and there's great ones. And if, you, know, you could just have book after book of recipes, and, and you could buy the ingredients. And you could do your best to follow the instructions, right? And some of them aren't going to turn out so great, and some of them are going to be fine, and you're going to learn by trial and error, and that's perfectly acceptable. But if you want to learn how to cook, you may want to find a good cook, walk into their kitchen, and watch them do it. So it's going to be good to have the book and good to have the recipes, but you need a model, you need an example. Somebody that can cook, walk up into their kitchen and watch how they prepare it, and watch how they season it, and watch how they taste it, and watch how they develop the sauces and everything that goes with that. If you want to learn to cook, stand in the kitchen and watch. What if you want to learn how to suffer? Because you're about to. Then you need to walk up into the kitchen of those who have suffered and see how they put it together. See how God put it together in their life. What if you want to learn how to be generous? Walk into the kitchen of the people that you know that are generous and see how God has birthed generosity in their life. That's how we grow. We need examples. We need models. We need to be able to go into the kitchen of the people around us so that we can have examples spur us and show us how to walk these truths out and how to walk these experiences out. The sacrificial examples of others can spur gospel generosity. He's given us people around us so we can see, we can see a model. I know you're thinking, like some of you, hopefully not many of you, you're thinking, oh, there we go, preachers talking about money again, right? How many of you are thinking that? No, just don't. Don't raise your hand. <laughs> so if you're thinking that, I mean, one, you probably hadn't been around here long because we don't talk about it that much, only when it shows up in the text. But the heart that thinks, the heart that thinks, man, preachers and money, the heart that thinks that way has missed something so important. This isn't about money at all. And if what you get out of the next two weeks is, I should give more money, and that's all he cares about is more money, then you have totally missed the text. You've totally missed what God is saying. I want you to see the radical generosity of God. I want you to see the nature of God who adopted you into his family to make him like himself. And I want you to, to see his generosity 
And I want that generosity to seep down into your heart and open up your heart to be more generous. I'm not going to ask you for anything extra. I'm not going to ask you to give any extra money. I'm going to just ask you, open up your heart. Have you tasted grace? Open up your heart. Has that grace worked its way out of your, into your life where generosity flows out? Sacrificial. Sometimes it cuts generosity. And that may be money, but that may also be time and life and service and presence. So I don't want you to limit the money. I don't want you to get just money out of this. I want you to get there as a radically, lavishly, wonderfully generous God who has given. And he's made me, or is increasingly making me, a lavishly generous person because I've received. Let's look at it in the text. So he transitions off the topic into this offering for Judea. And so the churches in in Judea are, well, the region of Judea is experiencing this extreme famine. And it's so extreme that it's affecting and creating poverty. It's creating hunger. It's creating a lack of just basic needed food for people. And so this whole region is suffering. And Paul, along with others, has enlisted the help of the global body of Christ, at least global at that time, to say, our brothers and sisters are starving. What are we going to do about it? And so this offering is coming. It's it's an above and beyond offering. It's a special offering where where Paul is mobilizing people to come and and to give to that. And the way he spurs the Corinthian church on, the way he challenges them to generosity, is by giving them examples. And he says, I want to give you the example one. The example one is the Macedonian church. With all their poverty, in the midst of suffering and persecution and, and, and physical hardship, they begged me to let them give. So it's almost like Paul's like, guys, don't. You, you don't have enough. Just like keep it. And they're like, uh-uh. You're not doing that to us. You're going to let us give. We've given ourselves to Jesus. You're going to let us give. And then the second example shows up in verse 9. And it's the example of Jesus. The one who is infinitely and eternally wealthy. Lacking nothing for all eternity. Becoming poverty stricken. So that we might be rich in the kingdom of God. And he gives those examples to spur on gospel generosity, to prompt hearts to receive the grace and then pour the grace back out. And so look, there is a certain discipline, but there's also a certain warfare to your regular week in and week out giving. We call it a tithe, right? 10%. There is a warfare that happens because something in your heart, every time you write that check, it's like, oh, but what can I do with it? Something in your heart wants to hold on, doesn't it? I mean, if we're just honest, it still happens to me sometimes. And if you give online, that's great. But I would encourage you to rethink that. Like, do it if that works for you, that's fine. But I would encourage you to even rethink that. To take up the active warfare and the active worship of actually filling out a check and saying, God, thank you. Because that's what you're doing when you give. You're saying, God, thank you. You're my provider. Thank you. You've given me breath and life and everything. Thank you. You've given me a job. Thank you. You've given me the skills to be successful at that job. Thank you. You're my boss. You're my provider. All that I have and all that I am is a gift from you. Thank you. And every time you write the check, you're writing a thank you note to God. But you're also writing a faith check. God, not just have you provided for me, but God, I believe you'll continue to provide for me. I believe you'll continue to work in me. I believe you'll continue to take care of me. I believe you'll continue to watch over me. And so God, in faith, I give the resources I would otherwise hoard because I believe you're going to take care of me tomorrow the way you took care of me yesterday. So thank you, and I believe in you. And that's what I say with every single check. God, you've been so lavishly generous to me. How could I hold it back? 
And I fight the things in my soul that would say, no, keep it. Make it a little less. You could do something with this. And I say, be quiet, flesh. I go to war with flesh. And I worship. Oh God, you're so worthy. You're worthy of every penny I own. You're worthy of my whole life. You're worthy of every breath. This is nothing. And I declare with worship and warfare this check. And so there is a discipline to that and there is a, a sacrifice to that. But that's not what this text is talking about. It gives us principles for it, but that's not what it's talking about. This text is talking about the above and beyond. It's going to cut a little bit or a lot above and beyond giving. It's the kind of giving where God has burdened me for a people or he's burdened me for a cause or he's burdened me for an issue and he's burdened me so much that I'm willing to start shaving at my life and really cutting at my flesh to make sure that there's resources provided for that. And so we as a church, you know, we give some things like this emphasis throughout the year. Like, you know, Lottie Moon's one of our big ones because we believe the gospel needs to go to the places it's not. And we believe that one of the best ways for that to happen is for the, a mission board to be raised up that will equip missionaries so that, that they don't always have to, to come back and necessarily uh, plead for money. And so we give lots of emphasis to getting missionaries to the hard parts of the earth. We also give lots of emphasis to our missionaries that we've sent out because we want them to be taken care of. And there's a few other things throughout the year, but we try to be very careful about over-asking for that. Because you're going to run into people in your life, and God's going to say, take care of it. And if you don't have the margin built into your life to take care of it, how are you going to respond when God calls? Are there going to be causes that you hear about that so grip your heart that you cannot let them go, and you know God is saying, release resources to this? And are you living in a way when that happens? You can do it. That's what it's talking about. Above and beyond, beyond your means, sacrificial because of the sacrifice of Jesus in your life, gospel generosity. And that's what he's going to challenge us to in this text. So let's look at it. He's going to start with this first example. You know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. He uses a strange word there, doesn't he? You know about the money. You know about the crops. You know about the things that could be taken to market and sell? No. You know about the grace of God that was given among Macedonia. You see, what Paul knows is what we, we can learn. Generosity is not natural to any of us. Now, I may give because it gets me approval, or I may give because I use my money to control people, but an actual free gift to other people, that requires a grace act of God in our lives. And a byproduct of a soul that has tasted grace is Generosity. And so there's this direct connection between I have encountered a generous God. I have encountered the God who did not spare his own son. And if he freely gave us his son, how will he not freely give us all things with him? I've encountered that God. I've encountered a God who so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The key characteristic of God is he is a giver. And you possess nothing that he did not give you. He is a radically generous, slay his son for your life, God. And a radically generous, slay his son for your life and your adoption and your salvation. Pour something into you that has to come back out. And what comes back out is the characteristics of your father, generosity. The characteristics of your father, giving. And I don't just mean give more money. I mean life. Everything he's given to me. For all of him to consume me first, treasuring him, comes out the life that's generous. 
And so you know the grace, you see grace is an evidence, I mean generosity is an evidence of grace received. But generosity is also a byproduct of grace received. And so when we find that, that we're beginning to hold too tightly to the things in our life, we find our hands clenching back down, I guarantee you if you start looking beyond and under the hood, what you're going to find is a soul that hasn't tasted grace lately. A soul that hasn't gazed on the beauty of the Lord lately. Because when you gaze on the beauty of the Lord and when you taste the experience of grace and know that He is good, it'll always open your hands back up to give life away. And part of life that's necessary is sometimes that means resources away and money away and stuff away. You know the grace of God that was given among the Macedonians. And then look at these four words that do not go together anywhere on earth except for in the gospel. In the severe test of affliction, abundant joy, extreme poverty, and the end result of that, generosity. So in a severe test of affliction, you see the Macedonians are more like Paul than the Corinthians. Because Paul throughout this book comforts us in every affliction. We were afflicted to the point we thought we were going to die. We were afflicted, fears without and, and um, uh, uh, sorry, fightings without and fears within in Macedonia. Like opposition, persecution, affliction. That's Paul. And now he's bringing another exhibit in. There are faithful followers of Jesus all over Macedonia who in a severe affliction. That's their condition. And if you read the book of Acts and if you read Thessalonians, uh, so Thessalonica, Philippi, Berea are some of the churches that he's talking about in Macedonia. And if you read the book of Thessalonians and um, if you read in Acts, you'll find those churches were plagued with persecution. And they were plagued with opposition. And clearly since there's this great poverty there, there's some amount of just circumstantial hardship that's a part of that in this severe test of affliction. And the word for test there is the word for expecting a positive outcome. Meaning the proving. So in this proving, I know you're going to do it. I know faith is going to come out on the other side. In this severe test of affliction, what was their posture? Abundant joy. Abundance of joy. That's not natural. That's gospel. You see, the foundation of our joy is not our circumstances. The foundation of our joy is not our job going swimmingly. The foundation of our joy isn't a promotion. The foundation of our joy isn't our marriage. The foundation of our joy isn't our kids. The foundation of our joy is Jesus Christ, the unchanging one who has bought us and made promises to us. And so that, that the foundation of my joy holds, even though life is pouring tears out of my eyes, even though opposition is coming into my life, even though slander is coming into my life, even though the things that are supposed to be going well are not going well at all. There's underneath the hardship, the tear, the stress, and things like that, there's this foundation that holds. And the foundation is Jesus. Because He's there when the circumstances are great and blessings and favorable. And He's there when they're not. And He's enough for both. And so that's what He's saying here. There's an abundance of joy. There's this Jesus treasuring, Jesus sustaining joy in affliction. Don't usually go together. Only go together because there is a gospel that saves us. But then it keeps going. And then extreme poverty. The word extreme is the word for like dead broke. Like it's not a little bit poor. It's a lot poor. It's, it's actually the word that means like the deepest depths. And so they are in the midst of extreme poverty. They're the ones that should be having collections taken up for them. What's their response? An overflowing wealth of generosity. Only the gospel makes this equation make any sense. 
Only the gospel, when things are tight, keeps us from clenching down. Only the gospel, when things hurt, keep us from becoming bitter and keep us from withdrawing and allow us to push back out into the joy of Jesus and the love of other people. Only the gospel does that. So notice these modifiers. Do you see them? And so it's like severe affliction, abundant joy, extreme poverty, overflowing generosity. And you know what I think God's saying? Is that no matter how deep your hardship or deep your financial heart struggle is, the grace of God has a better joy and a richer generosity than your circumstances. And so all of the low that this life can bring, there's a grace that is better and higher in the midst of it. It's abundant. See, he didn't come that you could just have life. He came that you could have abundant life, a life that is rich and full and Jesus-saturated and joy that sustains us in trial. He came that you could have a life that's real life and full life and meaningful life. And so when that's not happening, it's not a cause for guilt. When that's not happening, it's a cause to go back to the well. It's a cause to go back to drink deeply of the goodness of your God and taste and see that He is good. It's a call to go back to the well and just saturate your life and remind your life of grace and who grace has made you and what grace has accomplished in your life. That's the call when your soul is shriveled. That's the call when you cling tightly. That's the call when abundance and joy doesn't characterize our lives anymore. Go back to the well. Drink deeply at the well. Look at Jesus. Gaze at Jesus. Stare at Jesus. Remember the promises of Jesus. It overflowed in generosity on their part. And then he goes on and like they, they gave according to their means. And in fact, they gave beyond their means. And look what he makes clear. This is of their own accord. This wasn't Paul's pressure or Paul's manipulation that made this happen. In fact, it seems like Paul was like, hey guys, ease up a little bit. You guys need. And they're like, uh-uh. You're not doing that. They begged us for the favor. They begged us for the grace to be part of the relief of the saints. They begged us to take their money. And that's a little bit of a reverse, isn't it? What if when we took up our offering, it wasn't me making these guys do it. I don't really, I don't make them. They just, they love their, the serve the church. But what if it wasn't that? What if it's like, we're not waiting on you guys to get this plate up. I can't wait a second longer to be generous. I can't wait a second longer to meet this either. That's what they're, like, they're begging, please let us give. And Paul's like, they did it of their own accord. And so Paul's not guilting and manipulating people into giving. And I hope you never hear from me guilt and manipulation to give. I hope what you see is like, look at Jesus. Look at a God who gives so generously and lavishly. And it opens up your heart. And an opened up heart with gospel grace and it opens up a life of generosity. And I hope that's what spurs on your generosity. And I hope it spurs it on, yes, give to the church, but I hope it spurs it on because there's people around you that God may have given you something specifically because they're going to need it. And I hope it opens up your heart to make sure that they get it. Because you're the means he's using to provide sometimes. You're the means he's using to bless sometimes. You're the means he's using to ease the burden of other people sometimes. And so, the grace of God that has been working, this radical generosity, and then he ends up with instructions. So like, here's the example. Now here's what you should do. You should actually go ahead and be generous. Right? And so he talks to Titus, and he's like, you know, Titus... You need to get them to complete this. And then he's like, you know you guys excel in everything. If you read 1 Corinthians, he's like, God, you guys are so great. You've got all these spiritual gifts. You're so wonderful. You're just overflowing in spirituality over there at Corinth, right? And so he kind of plays off of that. Not negatively, positively, just a little positive reinforcement. You guys excel in all the gifts. 
You also excel in my love for you. Excel in your generosity as well. So that's kind of the instruction as he, he closes out. You excel in everything. My pages are too thin. There we go. Excel in the act of grace. And I don't say this as a command. I say it as this is a way to prove out. This is a way to display the genuineness of your love for God. And it's a way to display your, your genuineness of your love for other people. Like, this isn't a command. This is what the gospel does when it takes over a heart. Right? You see that? Right, Jesus one day was watching with his disciples, and there's these guys bringing in these big wads of cash and like throwing it in the treasury of the temple. And he's look, I got a big wad here, and throws it in there. Look, I got great big offerings of money. I put it in there, and then this little old hobbled lady walks across. And she pulls out this little purse, and I imagine it's probably a little bit worn. Her money purse has kind of gotten thin. And she reaches in there, and all that's in there is a couple of pennies. She pulls out her little pennies, and she drops it in. And Jesus is like, my disciples need to see something here. They need to not miss it. And so he stops everything. This woman gave more than everybody else combined because she gave out of her poverty while they gave out of their riches. And the point that Jesus wanted his disciples to get is that in God's economy, the dollar amount on the check is not the relevant factor. The generosity of the heart behind it is the factor. You see, the Macedonian, their whole, all the churches of the region may not be able to give, but one or, one or two Corinthians could give on themselves. Corinth was a wealthy, port sea trade city. There was full of affluence. And so a couple of Corinthians could have given more than all the Macedonians combined. The dollar amount wasn't the issue. The heart was the issue. The gospelly, generous heart was the issue. And so, I want you to look at your own heart. Is it generous? I want you to look at your own heart. Have you tasted the grace of God? Have you drunk deeply of the well of Jesus' grace? Can you tell that by the way your life and your stuff has been something open and generous to others? Have you drunk deeply of the well of grace? Has generosity than the response that's come out of that. Do you see areas in your life where you're holding pretty tightly deep down as opposed to loosely? And I'm not talking about just your money. I'm talking about your life. I'm talking about your time. I'm talking about your relationships and your relationship space. I'm talking about your home. I'm talking about your dinner table. Are we a people who cling? Let's go drink from the well again. Are we a people who have drunk deeply of the goodness of God? And it's all open. It's all his. See, the Macedonians, it says, gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us. Jesus, this is a supreme treasure. God's glory is our foundational joy. When that happens, giving ourselves to others is nothing. Because it's all his anyways. The last step here, the last example, the sacrificial example of Jesus lovingly compels our gospel generosity. The sacrificial example of Jesus lovingly compels our gospel generosity. And so you have the Macedonians, they're poor, and yet they're very generous. The Macedonians are suffering, and yet they're joyful. Great example. But look at this example. Verse 9. For you know, same way he started out the text with the Macedonians, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... 
Though Jesus was rich, though Jesus eternally possessed everything, created everything, upholds everything by the word of his power, though Jesus existed eternally, worshipped by the myriads upon myriads of angels who from the beginning of creation on worshipped him, though he sat in heaven in perfect fellowship within the Trinity, though he was rich, eternally, God kind of rich, if he were to come to earth, God the Son were to come to earth as the highest, most adored king of the greatest empire on the history of the earth. If he were to do that, it would still be humiliating. It would still be a great, big downgrade from where he was. But that isn't how he came, is it? No, for your sake, he became poor. Taking on the form of a slave, emptying himself, despised and rejected by men, Man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. This is God the Son. Didn't need anything, didn't need anyone, didn't, wasn't missing something, so he came for you and came for me. Eternally happy God. Infinitely rich God. Humiliated himself to the point of being a slave. Humiliated himself to the point of the cross for your sake. For my sake. For the church's sake. He who was rich became poor so that you who were poor could become rich in the kingdom of God. Rich in the promises of God. Rich in the forgiveness of God. Rich in reconciliation to God. Rich in adoption to God. Rich in the family of God. Co-heirs with Jesus of all he possesses for all eternity. The infinitely rich one became infinitely or, or desperately poor so that desperately poor people become infinitely rich in the kingdom of God. Tell me how anything but generosity makes sense. Not guilt generosity. Not manipulated generosity. But wow. The love of God has been shed abroad in my heart. Wow. The Holy Spirit lives in me. Wow. I'm an eternal co-heir with Jesus. Wow. The meek shall inherit the earth. It all belongs to me one day and I'll judge it one day. And I'm worried about getting one more car. One more outfit. One more set of clothes. One more hairdo. I'm worried about one more fishing pole. One more purse. Not me, y'all. Right? The ones that it's appropriate to. And I'm so worried about getting one more thing because I don't realize I have everything for eternity. And I've been given everything in Jesus. Well, I pour that out in generosity. Here's my life, God. Here's my life, people. Well, I pour that out in generosity. Whatever I have, God, it's yours. Just ask. Don't ask, just tell. And then he draws the connection to the, to, the, to the command or to the instructions. Guys, a year ago you wanted to do this. A year ago you started to do it, but you didn't just start to do it. You desired, you wanted to do this. You had the Macedonian heart a year ago. You were yearning to go ahead and make this offering. You were earnestly desiring to give this money. And so all I'm asking is not to guilt you and not to say, look at the Macedonians, how great they are. All I'm asking is you to be faithful to that original desire. I'm asking you to be faithful to that original uh, starting of an offering that you had begun to do. And so that your earnestness could be seen not just by how you desire to give, but your earnestness could be seen by how you actually give. You see, it's great if God puts a burden on your heart for someone. It's a wonderful thing. What What a generous God that would say, I want you to be part of my blessing for someone. Or if there's causes and organizations out there that you really have this heart for, that's great. Does it do any good, though, if you're like, yeah, I should do that? And you never write the check? 
Like they can't cash your burden. They can't pay their bills off of your impression. The person near you that you're saying, be warm and well fed, hope everything goes great. Like they can't turn their power bill on with that sentiment. So don't just desire it. Don't just feel led to it. Don't just be burdened by it. Go ahead and just like go ahead and do it. Because Jesus didn't just think, yeah, it'd be great to redeem a bunch of people. God didn't just think, yeah, I'm a very generous God. He actually acted in generosity towards us. He gave his son and he will freely give all things with us, with that. And there's nothing that can separate us from his love. Not height, nor depth, nor things created, nor things past, or present, or things to come, nor angels, or principles. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He gave to create givers. And so what area of your life are you holding on to tightly to? He gives a little principle at the end. You know, we won't go into the little principle. We'll talk about that next week. I'm going to give you a few principles I use in giving. These are Chris's principles. They are not God's. And Chris breaks them when God says so. So just, they're guidelines, principles. Number one, I don't give cash to individuals. So in general, if somebody needs help, I will pay the bill, or I'll go to the gas station and pump the gas, or I'll pay the hotel. Like, so in general, I don't give cash directly to an individual. That's one principle I use. Second, I don't personally ever give to non-Christian charities. Red Cross does amazing stuff. But the federal government gives them money and non-Christians give them money. But non-Christians don't give money to gospel cause relief agencies. Non-Christians don't fund Samaritan's Purse. God's, you know, non-Christians don't fund Christian gospel ministries. And so, that, again, don't get mad. If you do, that's fine. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm saying this is what Chris Fowler does. If it helps you, great. If not, delete it. It's okay. So I don't give to non-Christian charities. Third, um, which means I do give to Christian ones. I want them to be Christian in nature and belief and practice. Third, I give, to, I give the most. I prioritize my giving to gospel spreading ministries. So if they're doing the gospel and helping the poor children of earth, like a compassion or something like that, if they're doing the gospel and, and meeting the needs of the world, like you know, Samaritan's Purse, if they're doing the gospel and providing wells and food and, and sustainable resources, like I want to prioritize that as my giving. Right? And so the gospel is central to what they do, and then helping people tangibly is what they do. That's another priority I use. And then lastly, I, I mostly prioritize gospel-spreading ministries that go where the gospel is not. So I want to give the most of my money and the priority of my money that is above and beyond to people that spread the gospel and to people that spread the gospel where there is no gospel. So that's kind of mine. Don't give cash to individuals. In general, I would, never, I would give my money to a Christian organization that, that's core Christian, not a non-Christian. I'm going to prioritize gospel-spreading ministries if I want relief to get somewhere. And then I'm going to maximize my priority on people that are taking the gospel where there is no gospel presence. So that's mine. Do with it what you want. You can delete that last minute and a half. Pretend like it didn't happen, or if it helps you, great. A few practical things as we close. Drink deeply of God's grace. If you find your generosity shrinking... Look under the hood and see, have you tasted and seen the goodness of the Lord lately? Have you gazed on the beauty of the Lord lately? Because I, I will almost guarantee you there's a direct line between closed hands and hearts that aren't drinking of grace. Go back to the well. Go sit at the feet of Jesus. Go stare at the promises of God. Go stare at who he has called you in Christ. Go behold the glory of the Lord.
Because only beholding will you be transformed into that image, that generous giving image from one degree of glory to the next. Second, be generous with your life. Your home isn't your home. It's a resource God invested in your life to steward for his kingdom purposes. Be generous with it. Be generous with your dinner table. Unless you fill up every seat and can't wedge another one beside it, there's room for people that aren't yet family to become family. There's room for the family of God that's not blood family to be made family with you. There's room for you to expand your life, expand your family, expand your table all at the same time so that more and more people are your family, whether they're blood or not, or whether it's Jesus' blood or your natural blood. And there's room at the table for those that don't know Jesus aren't part of his family so that they can experience family with him. Generous with your home. It's not your home. Be generous with your table. It's not your table. It's a kingdom outpost. It's a gift of God. Be generous with your life. Be generous with your relationship space. It's so easy to say, well, I've got these two or three friends and it works for me. I run in this circle. It works for me. And to make no space and no room for anyone new to experience belonging with you. Are you generous with your relationship space? Be generous with your service to the Lord and your service to the church. And be generous with your money. See, a generous life, yeah, money's just a little bitty piece of a big life given to God. Be generous with all of your life. And then the last one I'm going to point out, build margin in your life and finances. It's so easy to buy the most house I can possibly afford and the most car I can possibly afford and have student loan debt, car loan debt, house loan debt, spend every penny I make, make sure I have the newest clothes. It's so easy to spend every single thing that we bring in and with little pieces of plastic in our pocket to spend more than that, isn't it? But I want to challenge you to cut your lifestyle beyond just living at your means. Live below your means. Make sure there's margin in your life for when God says that person. Make sure there's margin in your life for when God says that cause. Make sure there's margin in your schedule. You know, we go to sports every single night and we've got this activity and this work and always full. Is there any margin in your schedule for human beings? Is there any margin in your schedule for relationships to form? Is there any margin in your schedule for people made in the image of God that he wants to redeem or made in the image of God that he wants to see grow into maturity? Build margin into your life. And if there's no margin in your life for people or for resources, then go talk to God for a really long time until he adjusts it. We have a generous God who has lavished a generous gospel upon us to make us generous people. The gospel creates generous people. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name we bow. And I pray that there would not be